0: Welcome to Just Breathe, Parenting Your LGBTQ Team, the podcast transforming the conversation around loving and raising an LGBTQ child. My name is Heather Hester, and I am so grateful you are here. I want you to take a deep breath and know that for the time we are together, you are in the safety of the Just Breathe nest. Whether today's show is an amazing guest, or me sharing stories, resources, strategies, or lessons I've learned along our journey, I want you to feel like we're just hanging out at a coffee shop having a cozy chat. Most of all, I want you to remember that wherever you are on this journey, right now, in this moment in time, you are not alone. And now it's time for the LGBTQ and a segment of the show. So if you have questions that you would like answers to, I would love to answer them for you on the show. And you can now give me a call at a number where you can just leave your question. It's a voicemail only. The number is 847-448-1212. I would love to hear the questions that you have, the thoughts that you have, and I would love to answer them for you in this segment. So again, that number is 847-448-1212. And I would love for you to be part of the LGBTQ&A segment. So today's question for our LGBTQ&A segment is What is covert bullying and what can I do about it? So there are really kind of two broad areas or descriptions of bullying, covert and overt. Um, Overt bullying is kind of really what we know more about. Bullying that happens in the the open. um, That's obvious, that kids get in trouble for, um, that is easy to see with your eyes, hear with your ears, that type of thing. Covert bullying is um, a lot more quiet. It's not as easy to see. Um, A lot of times it can be a lot more insidious. Um, The bullying that's done behind closed doors or written on bathroom stalls in text messages, um, really all the spaces that are hidden from adults, right? So what can we do as parents To help our kids through this, Um, the first thing is to know that we probably will not be aware of it, at least right away. This is something that, um, you know, it's easier for our child to say so and so said something mean to me than it is for them to talk about some of these, you know, covert ways that they are being bullied or that they are experiencing bullying or that a friend of theirs is experiencing it. So the most important thing that we can do is really to provide um, a a safe space for them at home and to create kind of this, the safety tree that we, you know, talk about a place where our child can just come home and be them, be themselves, be messy, be You know, a lot of times that means being grumpy, um, being a little bit, you know, angry or (laughs) teenager-y is the way that we describe it in our house. Um, But just kind of letting it all, just letting themselves be. And as much as we might be like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with them? This is actually a good thing because if they are feeling comfortable enough to just kind of let it all like process through it all in a very messy way, then that lets you know that they are feeling safe. They are feeling at home, truly at home. So what this does, it really does three really important things. First of all, it really sets up this, sets up the place where your child Knows that they can come to discuss things with you from the little things all the way to the big things. So, knowing that this is that home is a safe place really communicates that messaging to them. Second, regardless of what's going on at school for them, and regardless of how much they are actually acknowledging out loud to you, this space, this safe space in your home acts and serves as an important refuge for them. And so a lot of times, most of the time, you are not going to see really the deep importance of creating this space. And third, by giving them this space, it really allows them the time to kind of relax and recover and know that they have people who have their back, right? They have you, they have their family, and that gives them so much strength and confidence. And really on, on the, then on the outside, when they are out at school or out in public or out wherever all of these things are happening, this allows them to combat that covert bullying. Welcome to Just Breathe. I am so happy that you all are here today. I am really, really excited to introduce today's guest to you. I am really excited about the conversation that we're going to have and um, for you all to just join in and enjoy. I have with me today Sylvia Dukevich, who is the president and founder of the Critical Therapy Institute. She is a trained psychotherapist and she created critical therapy on perceiving a need for the theory and practice of psychology to reflect how race, class, gender, and religion intersect with psychological conflicts. She is the founding board member of Black Women's Blueprint and a member of the Physicians for Human Rights Asylum Network, where she conducts psychological evaluations documenting evidence of torture and persecution for survivors fleeing danger in their home countries. Whew, that's amazing. She trained at the Bellevue NYU Survivors of Torture Program the Parent-Child Center of the New York Psychoanalytic Society, and the New York Freudian Society. She has a master's degree in social work from NYU and a master's degree in psychology from the New School, as well as a bachelor's degree in religious studies and political science from Fordham University. She has lectured and presented throughout the country on critical therapy, including at Fordham and NYU, and has been featured in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Psychology Today, The Guardian, International Business Times, and Women's Health. So, wow, that is quite quite the bio, quite the introduction, and I'm just really thrilled to have you here so we can talk about critical therapy and all of these other things that you do because wow, just wow. (laughs)
1: Oh, thank you. Um, Thank you so much for having me. That's, uh, you know, you read the bio and I hope I can deliver. Um, But I am really happy to be here and to talk about, you know, important issues, especially in today's world after having survived COVID-19. So many people are struggling with mental health issues, parenting, identities, you know, a lot of things came out during the pandemic for people, a lot of their own unconscious desires, um, grappling with their identities, figuring out what they want to be in the world and how they want to show up in the world.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that um, that's actually an interesting that makes me it reminds me of a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with somebody about, you know, that time during when we were all really locked down. And, you know, as we all know now, I mean, a lot came from that. And um, a lot of people were, you know, either dealing with some really dark things um depending on, you know, kind of your age, it was really hard on kids to be, you know, away from their friends, to be not able to communicate and connect in the way they're used to communicating and connecting. And, right. you know, to your point of really having that time to really think about some of these deeper things about ourselves that we don't usually take the time to do, right? So, So what have right. you found kind of as we're coming out of this now. And have you found a lot of evidence with people that you're working with of, of kind of like the beginning of that work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have um, struggled. We anxiety is, you know, the number one struggle, because we have been told for, you know, a couple of years that, you know, if you get COVID, you right. may die. And that's <laughs> scary. Um, also, we've been stuck in places with people that, Hopefully, we like, which is our families, but some of us don't like our families. Some of us are in environments that are not Mm -hmm. safe. So, you know, I often say people fall apart when it feels safe. So, when you're in crisis, you just have to survive. You just keep going and you make sure that you make it through. I think now, as things are a little bit better, as the world is opening up, there'll be more and more people. Falling apart, rightfully so, and dealing with all the anxiety, all the fears, all the stuff that came out during the the lockdown. You know, we've been through a lockdown. And also, I don't think we have language around what we've experienced. Everyone is so eager to move Mm -hmm. on that we actually don't want to take the time to mourn what we've lost, to mourn the time, the feelings that came. People, a lot of people lost people. So I think it's important for all of us to allow each other and the space to talk about what it has been like and to acknowledge that we've all survived something that was very painful and that was very difficult. Now, I also have to say, and this is, you know, parents have struggled through the pandemic, you know, especially if you had younger children at home because they had to work and also care for their children. And we also have to acknowledge that those struggles were very different based on your economic situation, right? For some of it, the, for some of us, the pandemic was a stressor. If we had enough privilege to have money to hire someone to work through or, you know, go somewhere remote and feel safe. But for others, for low-income folks who didn't have the means, it was more than a stressor. It was really a traumatic event. And this is a good example of how the personal is political, of how mental health issues are always impacted by our place within society, by our lack of resources or access to resources and so forth.
0: That is such a great point. And I, um, I'm really glad you said that because I think it's something that as we're coming out Um, there are, you know, people that really want to like look at that and understand that and know how we can do better, not just as human beings, but as a society, right? Because this this did show a lot of cracks. And I mean, and made some cracks even bigger, you know, things that we knew already existed, but really made things so you can't ignore it anymore. And so... I'm wondering if you have kind of in your in your work, because this is what you're doing every single day, come across some things that, you know, people who who aren't in this work, but who are like, I really want to do something. I really and who have the either the privilege or the, you know, geographic geographic privilege but lots of different p- privileges right to right. be able to to help to do something
1: well i think um you know what's interesting also about this pandemic you are very correct that it offered us an opportunity to look at what doesn't work and to maybe reimagine things differently yet because it was a traumatic event a lot of us just wanted to go back to normal. A good example of that is I know people who have complained about our educational system and the need for reform. And yet as soon as schools shut down, everybody just wanted to go back to what we used to know. Instead of, Perhaps this is an opportunity to rethink things, to do something that we've always wanted to do, that we may not know what that looks like. We will make mistakes. But in order to come up with different modes of, you know, being in the world, um, we need to, like, experiment. I also think some people have come up with very interesting ways of supporting each other. You know, you had people that formed communities and pods and even mm-hmm. learning pods and so forth. So there was innovation. There was also a push to return to normal. I do think for some folks, it was a moment of reckoning with their place in the world and how they can help others. And I hope that, you know, the activism that came around supporting nurses, for example, and so forth, will not die out, right? We we tend to have short memories sometimes. Um, so I hope that change happens every day, not just during a stressful time.
0: Absolutely. That is such a great point that we do have short memories We're we tend to be really, really great on the front end, you know, those first couple weeks, mm-hmm. and then it just and I wonder right. just from kind of a, a therapeutic a psychotherapeutic point of view um, you know what what that is you know is that a is that how we protect ourselves is that um, because it's so uncomfortable
1: well I think it's it's many reasons depending on you know your history and you know what activates you to want to help in the first place it's also burnout I think we have to you know I'm to be very realistic that we spend so much time working, Mm -hmm. right, that we have very little time to do those things that we are passionate Mm -hmm. about. I mean, fortunately for some people, I'm one of those people that actually – loves what I do, and I don't feel I'm going to work, but I also know that's a very small percentage of right. People, right? So when you spend so much time working, you don't have enough energy to devote to things that you care about, including helping others, including parenting, including your family, which I think is fascinating to me that as a society, we continue to talk about how much we care about families or how much we care, you know, pro-choice versus um, pro-life and 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 the that that pro life movement is is fascinating because we are so much discussing about fetuses and yet once we have children our system doesn't really give us the tools that we need in order to care for them we don't have you know parental leave that is Necessary to care for children. We don't have any economic means. If you're not well off to, you right. know, hire people, or um, we don't have a great educational system. So it's 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 fascinating. We pretend that we care about families, and yet we don't really mm-hmm. support them to be uh, successful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, you've you've hit that that nail right on the head. Uh, that is a conversation that. I have quite often both, you know, with my daughters, with my friends, with um, it is it is really fascinating to me. I mean, on that topic specifically, when you really think about all of the nuances involved. Right.
1: Yeah. And we know because of that, the pandemic affected women and women's career negatively because they also had to parent. I mean, we'd like to live in a world where, especially within heterosexual couples, people co-parent, but I'm not sure how much that actually happens uh, or the stories we tell about what we do. Ideally, people should co-parent, especially within heterosexual uh, couples. However, that doesn't happen. And because of that, mothers actually suffered. And I think it's also a good indication of where we are as a country where we say we support women and women's empowerment and so forth.
0: Right. Well, women are um, definitely expected to what the expectation is and what the reality is are very far apart. Um, And saying, yes, you can absolutely have it all is a lovely tagline. But the reality is,
1: although it's not a, it's, yeah, it's not a no, real tagline. It's not, it's not, <laughs> right? it's it's not, not true
0: or real yeah. or achievable because you right. can't.
1: And yeah, and, and I think the question I've always asked around that is, do we, should we have it all? And what I mean by that is that there should be a work-life balance. One of the things that I think has happened within, you know, the feminist movement is got it got co-opted into a discourse of women can work just as hard as men. We can be just as tough as men rather than how can we change society so that we have a better place um, for our children and for ourselves, that we have work-life balance, that we get time to relax and enjoy and and bring joy into our lives. Right,
0: right. And those are things that we definitely want to pass down to our children, right, as we experience these things, and especially, I know just speaking from personal experience, I'm... Constantly thinking of what, I mean, all of my kids, but specifically my daughters, how do I want their life to be different than mine? And how do I model that now right. so they can see, oh, wow, you know, this is possible or let's talk about this, right? I mean, I think that is one of the biggest mm. things is the the fear of talking about difficult topics and um, being afraid to either disagree or being afraid to, you know, have a different viewpoint than, um, you know, somebody you love, right?
1: Yeah. And I think as a parent, it gets, I I don't know if we know how to parent um, in a way that we share power with our children. If you think about our models of parenting, they're always about power (laughs) over. Even when you hear parents talk, especially if they have young children about, oh, My child is doing this. I'm not going to let him or her do this to me as if somehow we're like (laughs) equals, but we're not. (laughs) And it's not a power struggle. And we do have power over our children in the sense that we have a responsibility Mm -hmm. to them. But we don't offer great models of how do we share Mm -hmm. power. How do we allow them to have agency, critical thinking, to learn how to advocate for themselves? It's amazing to me that we keep telling children, you know, just follow the rules, do what I tell you to do. And then when they get older, we ask them to speak up and have an opinion and be revolutionaries. But they've never practiced that with anyone. And of course, they should practice with us or their parents, because we should be a safe space to really sort of bounce off ideas, have Debates, learn how to critically look at the
0: Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that has been one of the most fun, slash, I don't want to say frustrating, but like maybe like eye opening things that has happened in mm-hmm. the many shifts that have occurred in, in my house um, over the past five, six, seven years. But I mean, there are times, you know, we, we, my husband and I just decided, you know, like, let's, let's just let these guys go and see. And you know, a lot of this happened, of course, when we were home during the pandemic, right? So we had to get creative and, um, but just allowing them, I mean, we would be at the dinner table and having these conversations and they would just like really, and you could see them like really thinking kind of, leaning into well this is how i feel but i'm not sure if, if mom and dad are going to be okay with this but this is what i'm thinking about this but i'm not sure you know and then they would get like really fired up and go and and there would be times where my husband's like kicking me under the dinner table and i'm like just let it go you know <laughs> just let it go <laughs>
1: right.
0: because this is practice right this isn't um yes. you know and that's where and and it's such a it's such a cool thing to watch And, you know, one of the great benefits of that is that we can learn so much from our kids because they see things in a very different way than we do.
1: And they have and they also live in a very different world. Society changes our values, change who we are in the world, changes and it offers us an opportunity to find out more about the world, but also to rethink some of the things we thought we knew Oh, we thought we understood. And I think especially, you know, a lot of the stuff you talk about, about parenting an LGBTQ child, you know, that might be different than you, right? How do you deal with that? How do you, how do you even open up the space that your children explore their I- sexual identities? Right. Right. And it could be more than one. It could shift over time if nothing is set in stone. But I think we are so, as parents, we're so married to the ideas of who we want our children to be rather than offering them the opportunity to become who they want to be. Yes,
0: yes. that is, I could not say that better. That's absolutely correct. Um, and that's, that's very scary, right? That's a very yes. scary yeah. thing to come to terms with and then to be able to let go of. And, and one of the things that I, I like to talk about and get people talking about is mourning that, right? Being able to let go of that. Yes, we all have done it. Right. You you have these little mm-hmm. kids and you're like, OK, this one seems to like this. So they're going to be a doctor. Right. right? Or they're uh, okay. right. And you decide when they're five. Like this is how it's going to work. Right. And and of course, we you know, we live in a heteronormative society. So you just automatically people. That's where the thinking still is. Right. So there's all these little shifts and pieces where now you think, OK, well, this is really You know, this is my work I have to do as a parent. Mm -hmm. This is not on my child. Right. That's a very important distinction. Distinction. And and then like taking that breath and being like, oh, this is so scary, but I'm just going to I'm going to let them they they need to explore this. They you know, this is so important and it's going to be messy and it's going to be all over the place.
1: Yeah, and I think it's and I understand that it's difficult depending on where you are as a parent on the spectrum, and how do you understand sexuality, how do you understand gender identity, sure. that could look very yep. different. And I'm also I'm very interested in those parents who might be more conservative and who really sort of have a set norm that if you're going to be this, it's going to destroy your life, or this is not the path for you. Um, and I, I wish that. Learning to have to be a parent is learning how to be with an other. That's very different mm-hmm. than you, right? Your children are not mini me, and you probably wouldn't want a <laughs> mini me. Um, you would want someone that sort of contributes to the world, and you know, and I know that sometimes we have certain morals or certain religious tenets that we aspire to, but I think sometimes we have to wonder what type of world do I want to live in? Do I want to live in a world where I am actually shaming my daughter or my son? Do I want to live in a world where I'm making them regret? their identities or their sexual preferences? Do I want to be that parent? Because if we think about values, sometimes they we don't think of values. How do we live them day to day, right? How do we embody kindness, right? We say, oh, we should be kind. And yet we're not kind to our kids. Why? Because we have power over them so we could squash them if we don't like what they say. So I I really urge everyone, especially if you have a child who's very different than you, to actually be open to a dialogue and to be open to sort of being more kind and more charitable and more understandable rather than judging people, Right. right? One of the things I... I am so glad I'm a therapist because I feel like my job is always to understand, not to
0: judge. Right, me. right. You you embody my my favorite quote or one of my very favorite quotes. To, um, it's a Walt Whitman quote, be curious, not judgmental. And I think that is such right. a being able to keep that in mind. It's, it is a simple quote to remember. And the difference between being curious and immediately going mm-hmm. to judgment is a huge difference. And so, um, and I think too, kind of circling back a little bit, there is just knowing, um, knowing kind of what my back life story is and knowing, you know, a lot of people that I work with, um, there is that, you know, what we kind of unravel all those pieces, right. And you realize it's fear, Right. That that's at the base of all mm-hmm. of that. And um, that blinds you to being able to see.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's fear. I also think it's because we we do live in a very heteronormative world. We also live depending on where we live in very conservative yeah. worlds. And I don't think it's necessarily just fear. I think there is a lot of values or, you know, as I say, ideology that we are fed without even mm-hmm. realizing So intellectually, you might think you believe a certain things, but viscerally in your body, you experience that very differently. So you could be, oh, I'm very open minded. I don't mind. I love LGBT people. I love gay people and so forth. And then when it comes to your son, daughter and so forth coming out. Viscerally, there is a different reaction, and that's because we have so much indoctrination of how we should be, and it's so insidious, it's so present that we're not even aware of it. In the TV shows that we watch, in the books that we read, everything around us is always teaching us the right "quote unquote" way. What I often tell people is, if you ever find yourself on the side of the powerful, if you ever find yourself in power you should always take a step back and question that it's easy to be on the side of the powerful it is really difficult and yet so important to sit with and be on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized wow
0: that is you're absolutely right you're at, and that's such a great way of looking at that of of thinking and really requires
1: because we always defer, okay. sorry, but we always defer to power, right? So if we are in an argument, or if we if we always want to be winners because we've been taught winning is important, right? Got to win, uh, rather than well, we should understand, we should see out of this conversation what comes out. Maybe there is no right, but there are nuances. But it's hard because we say that, but everything in our society, the structure, work. School is based on winning, getting a good grade, being the best. It's not about how do we collaborate? How do we work together? How do we understand each other? You don't get a prize because you understood your friend at school. Like, wow, you know, Susie did a great job <laughs> understanding a friend today. Here you go. Go home and tell your parents, right. you know? Right. No,
0: that's that's but so true. And we absolutely mm-hmm. should. And um, I think there's a piece of this, too, that takes that requires um, the ability to kind of step back and you know when you're in those moments right because we are so hardwired programmed for mm-hmm. all of these these things to be right. aware to practice that awareness of oh this is what's going on i'm i'm going to try to sit over here or come from this angle and 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 speak you know a little bit of my truth let's try let's start with just a little bit of my truth right, right? or you know i'm really feeling this in my gut and i'm just going to I'm just going to say it. Right. And that takes well a lot of awareness, but it also takes a lot of courage to be able to, to yes. be able to do that.
1: Yeah. And I think speaking about courage, and I think especially um, in today's world, there's a lot of debate. There was a New York Times article around, you know, transgender identity. Um, so we, if we're going to talk about parenting, if we're going to talk about LGBTQ issues, we have to talk about this. Right. And I, I think it's important that especially for parents who don't understand their kids coming out and saying i don't feel like i am in the right body or i am gender nonconforming i don't have advice right that's that's one thing that i don't like to do because i think advice is always like a cookie cutter you should do this you should do that and i think it's different for every parent it's different for every child my only sort of mega advice or sort of narrative that that should we should have in our minds is be open to Listen, be open to ask questions, and you don't have to resolve anything in a moment. It's, you know, your child is going through something, trying to understand who they are, trying to understand their gender and allow them and allow yourself the time and space to... Figure it out. It doesn't have to be done tomorrow. It doesn't have to be done right away. There's always some urgency. I think whenever we are um, presented with something we don't know, we got to solve yes. it right away as <laughs> opposed to having the ability to sit with things. Now, one of the things I say to people who come to therapy, I think the hardest part of therapy is the ability to sit with your mm-hmm. feelings. And of course, you know, in the beginning, they're like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) whatever. Um, That can't be hard. (laughs) Right. And then, you know, as we do this work together, you know, a couple months in, they have to sit with their feelings and they want advice. Mm -hmm. Right. I often say if you end up going to a therapist that gives you advice, it's probably not the best therapist. Um, Our job is not to give advice. Our job is to ask questions Mm -hmm. that will sort of, evoke answers yeah. that will help you. You have the answers. You're just probably unaware or afraid to ask those yes. questions. Um, and and since we're on the topic of therapy, you know, I do want to mention, I think one of, the, one of the differences between critical therapy and other therapists out there are the fact that we have a very deep analysis of power because as we've talked about, that's important. And also we invite the political into the room. And what we mean by that is not who you voted for if you're a Democrat or Republican. What we mean is how do issues such as workers' rights, gay rights, impact and affect your mental health? Because we don't live in a bubble. We often say that the personal is political and we should account for those identities and intersectionalities, but therapists account for it in naming them but not actually analyzing how they impact how you show up how you show up in therapy, how you show
0: up as a parent, how you show up at work and so right, forth. Right, right. I'm glad you made that distinction because I was um, I was very curious and I also, I'm sure, you know, everyone listening is very curious, you know, what what is the difference? And, and I really like that a lot. I think that, again, as a society, we tend to be afraid to, you know, I'm going to talk about my feelings. I'm going to mm-hmm. talk about my mental health. I'm going to talk politics is its very own thing religion is very own right. thing right instead of understanding how all of these things intertwine and um and make us you know who we are right and really understanding that because i think a lot of that is not understood so right
1: Or, you know, I I know this, I've trained as a psychotherapist, and I think as psychotherapists, we learn how to be good therapists to really sort of invite some questions around politics, but we don't learn how to practice a social justice model. Um, because we believe that therapy is apolitical, but nothing is apolitical because we're dealing with people's lives. So, you know, I often say, if you go to a therapist, you should consider how does that therapist embody and live out their values, How do you practice in a way that um, takes into account a social justice model? So if someone comes to you that is suffering, and if someone comes to you that is um, struggling, how do you uh, talk about those issues? But also, how do you talk about issues when someone is not struggling? We are very good at talking about, for example, gender when we are talking about otherness. So if you go to a therapist that's a male and you're male and presenting as male and so forth, you're probably not going to talk about male privilege because it's invisible. It's two guys just doing right. therapy. Um, but if you're a man and a woman, then you talk about it because there is a difference. And I believe that in order for therapy to be effective, in order for us to be better human beings and lead more authentic lives, we have to talk about those issues regardless because it's impacting all of us. Um, it's not impacting all of us the mm-hmm. same way. But discrimination impacts all of us on some level. Toxic masculinity impacts all of us and how we show up in relationships, how we show up as parents, how do we co-parent and so forth.
0: Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Um, And I think that is, I'm glad you brought that up as well. So two questions from that. First, toxic masculinity is definitely a a buzz phrase right now. Um, I know that my, my kids use it a lot. And um, I'm wondering if you could give a, a definition, because I think that a lot of people, a lot of parents um, are like, Oh, what does this mean? Because it it's not super intuitive. I mean, I think there needs to be a little explaining. Okay. So you know how to not only recognize it, but then how to talk about it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's disposing uh, that masculinity means that you have to be tough, that you have to always be right, that you have to put others down. And it does, it, it's, it's what's really complicated is because we have so many years of doing this. How do we separate masculinity, like healthy versus unhealthy? How do we define what a man quote unquote is? And all those questions should be open for discussion rather than thinking that we know the answers. Um And I think that Toxic masculinity has taken over all our discourses. Is again, we go back to this discourse of power, of winning. Um, of, I mean, we had presidents that embodied that, and some of us, uh, you know, thought that they okay. were great. Uh, <laughs> we had, you know, we had. Um, it, it's interesting. One of, I think, my patients are are the smartest people, and much smarter than that. I am, to tell you the truth. I remember when um, Hillary Clinton was running for president and Donald Trump, right? And then she came, she was a survivor of sexual assault. And she came to me and she said, so Sylvia, who do I vote for? Is it the woman who protected someone who assaulted, you know, his or abused his power with his intern? Or is it the man who sexually assaults right. women? So the choices were, were I mean, there were better choices, but they weren't great. And the fact that we didn't have a choice of someone who didn't sexually assault women or didn't abuse their power, someone who supported that type of masculinity tells you how it's present in every everything we do.
0: Wow. It really is. And I don't think many of us, most of us have probably ever really thought about it in that way because, you know, to your point, it is just ingrained in everything. Right. So, so how do we start becoming more aware and start having these conversations where not only, you know, obviously your, your therapist is a wonderful place to start, but, you know, if it's not happening there, how do we have that, you know, with our partners, with our kids, with, you know, our friends, family members,
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I say is we need to learn how to have more nuanced conversations. Mm -hmm. We're so addicted to sound bites and we're so addicted to right or wrong Uh, from all sides. Oh, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. Sure, some things are more right than others, but in order to change the world, we need to first have a dialogue. We need to ask people, how did you come to this belief? And also, how does this belief impact other people in your life? I think I would like to believe that most of us want to be decent human beings. I think if we knew how our values sometimes hurts other people in very real and tangible ways, then I would like to believe that most of us, maybe not all of us, will change. Um, I think it's important, especially with our children, that we teach them critical thinking skills. We no longer do that in schools very well. We're so um, we're practicing this banking model of education, which means literally, like we go and we deposit information, and then they give it mm-hmm. back to us, and you know they get great great and everyone's happy, but we don't actually teach them how to think, how to think of new possibilities, how to discover things, how to explore. The more we focus on achievement, we, we've we done studies on this. The more we tell kids to achieve, the less they're willing to explore and take risks because the reward is not about, oh, I've taken a risk. I've come up to something different. I thought of something I wouldn't have thought otherwise. The rewards are like, you're, you're you did your best and you won and here's your low gold right. star. Um, so the revolution starts at home. As much as I would like for our schools to change, and maybe they will with time, as much as our society might change with time, it will always change right. with us. I think it's very important for us to reckon with our our values and to think about how those things impact other people and to question, do we want to be this person in this world? Do I like myself if I met myself? So it it is always about being more compassionate, being more understanding, being willing to have conversations that are uncomfortable that I think change happens.
0: Absolutely, they do. Um, and. It's interesting. I was thinking too as you were saying that about just thinking about my kids who have been through high school and um they're half half of them are through. And I what, one of the things that I noticed was exactly this. When they were in the higher level classes, that is where they really learned these critical thinking skills, right? Like that's where they were kind of mm-hmm. let go to be like, "Okay, we're going to explore this now." Well, why can't that be in every level? I mean, that that should be at every right. level, right? Mm-hmm. Every kid is capable of it and it can be um, introduced in different ways. So I think that, you know, obviously this is something that over time will shift and will hopefully shift <laughs> would be lovely um, because that is such an important An important skill and just seeing, you know, now as they're going through college and into into the real world, having that ability to be able to really stop and say, "Okay, how do I really think of this? How does this really make me feel? Because I know I did Mm -hmm. not go through school like that. I mean, it took me till well into my 30s to be able to do that. Right. I don't want that for my kids. I don't want that for any kid, any person. So um, that is something that is really, really important.
1: Yeah. And I think we have to demand more from our schools, demand more from therapy. I mean, one of the reasons why I've created critical therapy and one of the reasons that I wrote this book that's coming out September 7th um, is because I do want to challenge therapists To think about how do they show up in therapy? What, how, what are you promoting? What are you practicing? How does your politics show up? Because they always do, even when you think they don't, they're Mm -hmm. always present. Um, and to also encourage people who are seeking therapy or going to therapy to demand more from their therapist, to not be afraid to bring out their many identities and their complicated, uh, places within the world and their uncomfortable discussions, because therapy should be that place where you get to explore. Um, I often say that the therapeutic relationship is a blueprint for all other relationships, meaning if you and I in therapy can work out our differences, if we could look and discuss difficult topics, it will give you the tools that you can do this with mm-hmm. other people. And you have to practice them. Or we right. go back to, you know, parenting. And I, and I wish that parents will do that, too, to To keep in mind that I am preparing my child for a world where they can advocate for themselves. They could speak up. They could learn to say no. We, you know, especially around the Me Too movement. And, you know, we talked about how do we teach girls how to say no? How do we teach boys how to sort of take a step back and listen? Well, we don't teach them that at the playground, It's a little too late when they get to high school or college because it's something you practice. You know, consent is not just about sex. Consent is about the many things you want or don't want to do in your life. And yet we don't allow our children to practice consent. We just say, shut up and do what I tell you to do and move on. And yet all of a sudden there are not lessons. Oh, now, now you got to learn how to say no. And you have to learn how to say no without your clothes on, although you've never done it in real life with your right, clothes on, right. you know, <laughs> good luck.
0: You know? Right. Oh my goodness. Yes. Oh, that is so, uh, and and how do we do that? I mean, how, that is such a shift to be able to, because I think it's something that I, um, that I run into is, you know, they're too young when they're, when they're that age, they're too young to be teaching this thing, you know, these things. And, you know, in my case, it's talking to, you know, young children about, sexual orientation or gender identity, right? You know, in this case, it's Mm -hmm. consent and just, um, you know, critical thinking. Well, that can be taught from tiny, right? Um, And in very various ways. So again, I mean.
1: Yeah. And and I'm going to interrupt you for a second because I do have to say this, this idea of like around gender identity, around sexuality, and especially around gender, they, we already teach children about gender before they're even born. (laughs) We just don't want to acknowledge it. Think about oh, is it gonna be pink or blue? Is it gender neutral? I mean, now we've sort of incorporated more terms that allow for some diversity. But our society is very much ingrained into teaching boys and girls how to be, and it could only be those two. Right. Um, and if you don't believe me, um, go to a playground with a where there's toddlers and you will hear parents say Oh, is that a boy or a girl? Oh, this, you should do this because you're a boy, you should do. And it's amazing to me that in this day and age, we still do that.
0: We do. I think it is one of those, um, parents don't even hear what they're saying. It is not even a thought, right? Right. That's not a conscious thought pattern. It is just, that's how, you know, that's how we're wired. And that's what needs to change. And And it's the same, I think it's the same around
1: sexual, um, it's not just around identity and gender identity, but sexual preferences. Again, I was actually talking to one of my patients and her struggles with, you know, her daughter is very young and how much she's getting sexualized by other parents without even realizing in comments like, oh, is that her boyfriend? Because she's holding hands with a little boy in kindergarten. And we do Mm -hmm. that and we think it's cute. It's actually not cute because we are actually telling them about our values. We're sexualizing them because all of a sudden holding hands with this boy means that you want to, you know, be their girlfriend. Um and kids don't necessarily think that way, but we teach them. And then when they don't want that, all of a sudden they feel bad. And and I think we shame them in a weird way, right? Because we think saying, oh, is that your boyfriend? It's a cute comment. But if you actually look at kids, there is a sense of shame because they don't know what you're talking about. They don't know, if, is this a funny joke or are you saying I'm doing something wrong? And that's how sexuality and shame and heteronormativity and it sort of gets linked together in ways that is very um insidious but we don't even realize right. we're
0: doing right that is exactly right and and all kind of circles back to that whole idea of we all need to learn to be m- much more aware of how we talk um especially how we talk to our kids and um and, and just yes really rethinking how we were programmed or how we were wired and mm-hmm. thinking, gosh, this could be construed this way, and I, I didn't even realize that, right? I mean, to this, and you think, like, as you follow that thread, right? And you think, okay, here it starts at some seemingly benign statement, right? But then it, it kind of circles into this where you realize, oh my goodness, that there's there's shame, then there's guilt, right? Then there's confusion
1: Christ. because
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're like, I, yeah, I don't understand this. Right. So, I mean, right. you're already building these layers, the kindergarten mm-hmm.
1: and expectations, because now you're like, oh, so I guess you want me to like this boy. OK. Um, right. And, and it, it it's already there. And I think one of the things that um, you've said that I would like for parents to think about is to be very intentional. You have a responsibility as a parent. So when you speak, and of course, we're not perfect parents. We're going to say stuff that is not intentional and may come out the wrong way. I don't think that's as important as how do you repair. So we are going to be bad parents, quote unquote, at some point. We're going to be frustrated. We're going to say something inappropriate. And that's not as important as how do you come back and repair that. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. And If you had a perfect parent, you know, Winnicott used to say about the good enough mother. And now I say the good enough parent, because if you had a perfect parent, you'll probably raise a psychotic child because that child could never never live up to your expectations because you're perfect. So most of us are human. We're imperfect. We make mistakes, just like in all our relationships. What counts is not what we did, but how do we repair mm-hmm. it? How do we not do it right. again? Because you also don't want to be the parent that keeps saying inappropriate things and you come back and, oh, that was wrong. That was wrong. After the third or fourth time, you got to take a break and look at what's happening right. for you. Um, but I think to be intentional, to allow for mistakes to happen, but to always come back and be open about them, right? And you also model a different way of being in the world to your child where your child could say, well, I've made a mistake or I've changed right. my mind. The other thing about our society lately is like we don't allow people to change their minds, which I think is such a missed opportunity for change. And we all, I I hope we all change our minds as we grow and understand.
0: Oh my goodness. Yes. But you're absolutely right. That is, there is definitely, that's a no-no, which is absolutely, I mean, crazy when you think about it, because you're not going to have the same thoughts and opinions about things at you know, 40 as you did when you were 20, right? Or when you're 60. I hope hope Well, I hope not. Exactly. Um, so that is another thing, you know, another thing just that's, this is okay. Like giving yourself permission to, to do this. This is actually a good thing. And this, this means that I'm, I'm growing and I'm learning. And, um, sometimes I have, found. And I know so many, this is not exclusive to me by any means, but, you know, when you are able to be like, Oh, like, this is, this is not the societal norm, but I'm like learning new stuff. And this feels really cool. This is like interesting. And I, and you, you can, you feel that, like you feel that connectedness to whatever it is in a way that you never have before. Right. And you're like, Oh, this is kind of, this is really interesting. This is a really and, – and just go being able to go with that and be like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This right. is the human experience.
1: Yeah, and, and societal norms, we haven't done such a great job taking care of our children. We have more and more children suffering from mental health issues, struggling with – you know, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, and so forth. So it's not like, wow, everything's working out for these kids. Let's keep doing what we're doing. Because it's no. not, <laughs>
0: you know. It is not. It is not. That is for sure. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. I am looking at our time and I want to be respectful. So I'm trying to, I'm looking quickly at my questions because I haven't looked at them once. This has been so lovely. <laughs> Um, Well, thanks.
1: I I love to talk to people and I love to have, I like to practice what I preach, which is, is through conversation and dialogue that we understand and come to different ideas. So that's why I don't like the script. No,
0: well, I agree. And I always, you know, it's funny because I typically will, I will go always go into an interview prepared with questions. I would say nine out of 10 times, I, this is what I, what happens, right? <laughs> like, this was really fun. Um, this is such a great conversation. And we kind of wove all of this in here anyway. But I think one of the things I'm really fascinated by critical therapy and, um, you know, as one who has, you know, been in therapy for a number of years and feel that that is a very important part of my self-care and and that's what I tell everyone it's just I I, I just believe it's you know and and I recognize how fortunate I am to be able to have that but adding in this kind of extra this is like another level Mm -hmm. right this isn't just therapy this is you know critical therapy I am I'm really fascinated by how Um, Because I I think my therapist is brilliant. Um, And and how, you know, a therapist who already is wonderful, right, can kind of tie this into their work. And as a, you know, a candidate or, you know, person in therapy, how does that person kind of bring this into the work that they're doing?
1: Thanks for that question. So a couple of things, you are correct. I think one of the differences between critical therapy and other forms of therapy is our analysis of power, of bringing the political, of looking at the therapeutic relationship as a blueprint for all other relationships and practicing a politics of equity. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, I think the biggest thing is that we believe in transformation. We, you know, Therapy could be a place where you are supported, you feel heard, and you feel validated. And that's great. For me, that was not my interest as a therapist. I was always interested in transforming people's lives. I'm interested in, in people reckoning with who they are and how they want to be in the world and having more authentic lives. Um, one of the things that when we talk about our politics of, you know, equity is that, um, we wanted, and you touched upon this, uh, the fact that you can, Afford to go to therapy. A lot of people can't. Um, And usually we don't have very good services for people who can't afford therapy. So one of the things that we did because of our commitment to social justice is we've created a sliding scale. A lot of therapists have a sliding scale, but usually the sliding scale works that you have your fee and for people who can't afford, they just pay less. Well, our sliding scale is based on income and resources, and we don't have a cap for low or high, meaning your session could cost $50 or $1,000. So basically, everybody who comes to us pays the same percentage of their income and resources for their psychotherapy hour. So this way we actually put in practice, again, our values where we could see people from all walks of lives. Um, and it's very important that those people actually meet in our sort of waiting rooms. Um, and it's also a very um, important process in therapy to reckon with money. Money hides a lot mm-hmm. of things. And usually it's people who don't have money that have to always deal with Um, talks around fees and money and so forth. But affluent people also struggle with money. And it's a missed conversation of how does your privilege, how does having money make you feel? How does that influence how you show up in the world? So I think it's very important to have those conversations with your patients. So as far as uh, how people can find out about us, please visit us at criticaltherapy.org. We are thinking of doing more workshops for clinicians. Right now, we have a four-year program that trains psychotherapists who have graduated and are practicing into this model. But we are also aware that that model, we only train four or five people every year. And that's very strategic because it is hard and it's it's. The, the difficulty in this model is as a therapist, you first have to reckon with your own identities and you have to reckon with your own place in society and your own values. Um, But I do think it's something that's important for us to learn how to talk to other therapists that might be interested in learning how to incorporate some of these very important issues into their own practice. So we are thinking about maybe doing a one day workshop just to start the conversation um, and to sort of um, think about it. How can I do this
0: differently? How can I help my patients differently? That's great. And then you've written this book as well that's coming out in September. And that is written both yes. for, for both
1: therapists and for people right. going to therapy. Right. And we actually, in the book, I give a case presentation of how therapy looks like in critical therapy. And I wish that people would read that and actually sort of go to their own therapist and be like, how come we don't do this? Or can we do more of that? Um, because I think that's important. I also have a chapter about love in psychotherapy. Um, it's so interesting how therapists are so Nervous to talk about love and that's because our society often equates love with romance Mm -hmm. and relationships rather genuine love for someone that you see sometimes once a week sometimes twice a week and you spend an amount of time and talk about deep intimate Mm -hmm. issues love is always Mm -hmm. present.
0: That's wonderful. Oh, I'm I'm really excited to to read that when it comes out and um and I will link all of this into the show notes as well. So it'll be easy for people to just kind of click through and 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 find out more and be able to get on Thanks. get on the waiting list for this book. Um so just thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and I really learned a lot myself. So I always love having conversations like this that are just so rich and um, interesting. So thank you.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for the questions, for the conversation, for sort of being transparent. I think that we've modeled ourselves some ways that people can have conversations with each other, with their partners, with their
0: children and so forth. Wonderful. Yay. We did a good job. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's episode, I would be so grateful for a rating or a review. Click on the link in the show notes or go to my website, chrysalismama.com, to stay up to date on my latest resources, as well as to learn how you can work with me. Please share this podcast with anyone who needs to know that they are not alone. And remember to just breathe until next time.